for Young Stoners, the podcast that pairs cannabis with classic and cult movies to enhance your trip through cinema history. And we are celebrating International Women's Day here with a pair of Bob, classics by Bob, women... Uh, International Women's Day was last Wednesday. You forgot, dork. What? I forgot International Women's Day? Uh, should I get all the women flowers or something? Oh my god. God, International Women's Day isn't your fucking anniversary. You can't just make it up to all womanhood with just red roses or chocolates, you dick. You could start by actually paying women what they're worth instead of 70 cents on the dollar. Wait, wait, wait. Wait a second, everyone. Just chill out. Deep breaths. It's still Women's History Month, so we're all good here, okay? Okay? Uh, Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Felina, are we good? (sighs) Okay, whatever. Okay, so first, subjective and objective time blur as a young pop star faces her own mortality in Cleo from 5 to 7 from Agnès Varda, the mother of the French New Wave. And then Ida Lupino directs The Hitchhiker, a tense noir thriller from 1953, and the only classic noir to be directed by a woman. This year's theme for International Women's Day is, or was, Embrace Equity. So just listening to this episode could get you arrested in Florida and Tennessee. We are doing what we can to beat back the tide of fascism. All right here on Old Movies for Young Stoners. You got it, baby. Chest pains in the middle of the night. Want to scream? Oh, what's the point? Everything falls on deaf ears. The times are out of joint. The birds don't sing no more. And the crickets have all gone mute. Squirrels want you to run them over. It's like they finally know the truth. Hard time. Hard times are here to stay, my friend. Hard time. Hard time. Hard times don't ever end, my friend. Turn it off. Turn it off. Turn it off. Turn it off. <laughs> Doctors have turned to murder. Anything for a buck. And if you don't like it, baby, that's just your tough luck. And we're back on Old Movies for Young Stoners. I'm Bob Calhoun, the author of The Murders That Made Us, a true crime history of San Francisco. Joining me is Corey Sklar, your guide on the Hollywood Punk Rock Graveyard Tour. Look it up on Instagram. Uh, Corey, there's a couple big events coming to L.A. Do you want to talk a little bit about them in relation to the Hollywood Punk Rock Graveyard Tour? Are you talking about the Cruel World Festival, Bob? Cruel World and the um, TCM Classic Film Fest is uh, April 15th. Oh, my God. Okay, so Cruel World Festival is the big gothic festival. All the bands are playing. You got your Susie and the Banshees, your Love and Rockets, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And if you're coming to town to that, I'll give you a special deal on the Punk Rock Graveyard Tour. You can see all the dead goth people and punk rockers that aren't playing this year but they would be if they were still alive. I don't know how uh, interested the TCM uh, fans would be in dead punk rockers, but maybe they could take the actual or the, the official tour 
of Hollywood Forever, which is all like silent film stars and directors and stuff and people I have no idea who they are. Renee Adore and I, I don't know. I see a lot of pictures of you on uh, Twitter and on Insta with uh, you in front of like Buster Keaton's grave, and you, you you've got more classic film knowledge than you think you do, Corey. I think I I know I know it's a, it's, and, a, it's a sham. But look at who who just took the punk rock graveyard tour uh, this week. This is an exclusive. No one's seen this picture yet. But that is uh, Matt Berry from What We Do in the Shadows. <gasps> Laszlo. Laszlo. Oh. And if it's good enough for him, it's good enough for you out there, people. That's amazing. And back after a brief hiatus, she is an actor, voiceover artist, and fashionista. She is Felina Franklin. Hey, it's good to be back. It's good to have you back, Felina. It's great to have you back. I'm I'm glad to see you. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty okay. Uh, You know, I just moved into a new place. I'm out of the hellscape that is Santa Clarita, back in my home city of Van Nuys. Uh, it's, uh, it's great to be back in many ways. Uh, great to be back here. Great to be back on the podcast. Uh, yeah, good. All good things all around. Felina, let me ask you, uh, for those who aren't familiar, describe what exactly is hellish about the San- or about Santa Clarita, uh, which is about 30, 40 miles outside of Los Angeles, about Northeast, right? Yes. Yes. Um, I would say, when once you're driving into uh Santa Clarita, you already know it's gonna be bad because every single car has a Blue Lives Matter bumper sticker. Every single one of them. E- every person who lives in Santa Clarita either is besties with a cop or is a cop. Um, it's just not it's not great. Also, there are zero dispensaries in Santa Clarita. There was one day I was looking for weed. I was looking anywhere. I was on Google. I was searching every single place. And Santa Clarita, the city of Santa Clarita, two years ago, banned all dispensaries. Evil. They're evil. Going directly against the laws of the state they're in. Exactly. So stupid. These dicks. Yeah, Simi Simi Valley is the same way where I went to uh, high school. And uh, all the cops live out there. It's just where if, if you're a cop in L.A., you go you live out there because that's your it's your town yeah it's that's your favorite place home of the reagan library the ronald reagan presidential library simi valley california yeah yeah Yeah, i had a car burst into flames on me once in santa clarita so i naturally fear it like it was a 66 oldsmobile starfire which never buy a car with fire in the name never buy it it was a (laughs) nice beautiful mid-60s General Motors car, but it burst into flames, and it wasn't the engine. It was, the like, the muffler blew out or something, and it heated the vinyl in the seats enough that they just spontaneously combusted. So, I mean, I survived. I got out of the car in time. Like, flames, like, 20-foot-high gusts of flames. I could have killed people, and I, like, turn around and look, and there's Magic Mountain to the left of me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, I'm, I'm, like, going back to the Bay Area. I was still in my 20s. Uh, I lost a bass guitar in the backseat of that car, by oh. the way. Oh, man. Yeah, so it was just a... It was a PV. It was, like, one of the first basses I Those ever had. Those are very had. good basses. Those are very good It was good solid. I'd still be playing it now if I had it, but... I mean, um, it's interesting, because... Um, as conservative and and no dispensary having and white as it is in Santa Clarita, it is home to the California Institute of the Arts, which is right there. So it's kind of a, a, a contrast there. Your dad didn't go to CalArts, right? 
No, my uncle went to CalArts. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I um. Dan oh, yeah. Franklin. I, Dan Franklin and Shout out I Dan. believe I believe. Um. Also, my other uncle, my other uncle Dan on my mom's side. I have two Dans. Nice. <laughs> my two Dans. Not since time began has the primitive scene been captured for the screen with such imaginative realism. Behold man one million years B.C. Introducing the fabulous Raquel Welch, the sensational star discovery of this or any other year in one million years B.C. See her as Loana the Fair One, who deserted her tribe and risked her life to follow Tumac of the Rock People. I want to talk a little here about Raquel Welch. She died on February 15th, and for what it's worth, our tribute to her got over 5,000 plays on Twitter, which is a lot for us. There was just an outpouring of grief and appreciation for her, and I think it's because she embodied a kind of lost Hollywood glamour. Let me read some of the online tributes to her. Um, Alicia Amnesia, who runs the Punk Majesty uh, fashion line, she's had a lot of success with that. Do you know Alicia, uh, Corey? Yeah, very good friends with Alicia. On the day Raquel died or her death was announced, everybody was posting, all these pervy men are posting pictures of her from 1 million years BC in the fur bikini. Alicia had had enough and she posted, after seeing dozens and dozens of posts of a young Raquel Welch in a bikini as a response to her passing away, it shows no matter what she accomplished, she is still objectified by society. Yes, it's a beautiful picture and she was stunning till death, but the fact that I saw that one photo over and over in my feed is a sad commentary on how our society values beauty and perfection over substance and accomplishment when it comes to women. I didn't read any comments about what an extraordinary acting job she did or how innovative her wig line was or anything about how she as a human being or performer inspired anyone other than how seeing her in that bikini changed your life. Guys, Please do better. She's somebody's mother. Period. But Will McKinley, a friend of the show, Will McKinley, he posted to come from a no dialogue bikini clad dinosaur picture in 1966 and be able to do the range of things I have and survive was sort of discounted. I'm quite happy with what I've accomplished as an actress. Raquel Welch. Slay. Yeah, and uh, Neil Hamburger, the comedian, posted the Mayan video. He's a bit. He's a big fan of Raquel Welch. Uh, Greg Turkington, his his alter ego, is legitimately like the biggest Raquel Welch fan in the world. R.I.P. Raquel Welch. I loved her performance in Kansas City Bomber, and no musical clip has ever topped this from the Raquel TV specials. It's her on Chichen Itza on the Mayan Pyramid. Raquel created the most psychedelic piece of media ever with that TV special. I want to see the whole special. Raquel, with an exclamation point, broadcast on April 26, 1970 on CBS. She's dancing on Chichen Itza with some aliens uh, in the most amazing silver bikini. Yeah, I got to see this whole special. It is the age of Aquarius and all those aliens are actually the zodiac signs. Wow. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I can see that for sure. There's Scorpio. I see your Gemini. Oh, my God. This is iconic. These costumes are the most amazing like that ram in costume is better than midsummer it's better than the bear for midsummer it's so good and uh, then there's the space dance and the special has tom jones and weirdly john wayne is also in that special 
there's an amazing piece of footage from an Easter Seals telethon that I just discovered. It hasn't gone viral yet, so look this up, people. It's Raquel dancing with Marty Allen, Peter Falk, and John Cassavetes dancing her ass off. Uh, they're like really 70s dancing, like really shaking it. And uh, it is just very joyful. Peter Falk is trying to get some donations for Easter Seals. But that being said, yeah, I know Raquel Welch from the dinosaur movie, uh, these clips, stuff like the Easter Seals telethon. But Bob, is there a good, what's her best role? You know what I mean? What's a great Raquel Welch movie? You know what I'm going to say is her best movie? Her best movie is The Last of Sheila, which is a kind of murder mystery written by Stephen Sondheim and Anthony Perkins. It's from it's from 1973. It's an ensemble cast, so she's just one of many in it. But the cast is amazing. It's yeah, got James awesome. Coburn. He's like a movie mogul type who gets all these people onto a yacht and throws kind of mystery stuff at them. James Mason is in it. Richard Benjamin, a wow. young Ian McShane. Raquel, yeah, it's just got a loaded cast. If you like kind of drawing room mysteries and kind of weird, weird kind of gaslighting of multiple people on a yacht, definitely watch The Last of Sheila. Her other best performance is in Kansas City Bomber, her her roller derby movie, which is oh. from the from the mid seventies. That's one of her iconic roles. I mean, Raquel. The reason I wanted to bring her up is she's in a lot of old movies for young stoners because One Million Years BC's got the great Ray Harryhausen dinosaurs. Yeah, did she do a lot of a lot of like B movie stuff? Kind of B movie stuff like Fathom. It's like a lady spy movie or woman spy movie, kind of woman James Bond, kind of almost bordering on Austin Powers type thing, except it's her in tight, you know, scuba gear for most of the film. She's in Fantastic Voyage, which between Forbidden Planet and 2001, there's Fantastic Voyage is like the big special effects movie where her and Donald Pleasance and a bunch of other people shrink into a submarine that goes inside a guy's brain to perform an operation. So it's amazing that that despite her being a kind of a genre B-movie star doing these sci-fi movies and stuff like that, that she just became so iconic. She was she transcended basically being a film star and she was just kind of like an icon and her father was bolivian she's a latina icon which not yeah. a lot of people think about you know what i mean joe raquel tejada that's her real name like real last name is tejada i think one of her best performances was in 2001 legally blonde thank you that's what i'm looking for here the deep cuts yeah <laughs> Legally Blonde. She rocked that. I mean, it's it sounds kind of trite, but she was always great on talk shows, like looking at old Craig Ferguson episode. What, did I just hit something? No, that was me. Oh, no. I did something. Weird little voices from beyond. The, that was is, so Raquel, scary. Raquel, that is Raquel. that you? Are you trying to reach us, Raquel? All joint hands. <laughs> All joint hands. Hey, did you guys know that it's uh, movie's biggest night? coming up this week and um, by the time this comes out it'll already be over but tomorrow is at time of this recording at least is the oscars now if you're like me you didn't see very many of the oscar movies at all uh i know you didn't felina and bob i'm guessing you don't because you only watch old movies but did you see any of them are you rooting for anything at all you know what's funny is because is the academy just an uh, outdated uh, racist institution Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> <laughs> continue, Felita. Continue with those thoughts. Just, just yes and bad. Well, I went to the Academy Museum 
for the first time this week. And here's my brochure here, but you can't see listeners. But it was it's a jive ass museum. It's just all trying to convince you how woke the Academy is now. That's like every inch of it. But there was some cool uh, Agnes Varda stuff there. And um, and I bought some Viva Varda pins. So uh, that's cool. So go and they're only a dollar fifty. So go to the gift shop and get those. Um, and, you know, you can see like some monsters, like some R2-D2s and stuff there if you're interested in that. Let's see. We've seen more of the more of the nominated films than we think. I've seen EO because it's on Criterion, which, you know, we make heavy use of on this podcast, Criterion yeah. Channel. Great film. Uh, almost gets me to not eat meat, which, you know, Felina will be amused by. Uh, highly recommend that. I mean, of course, Top Gun, Mavericks nominated, Elvis is you nominated. Lo- you loved that. You loved Top Gun, right? Yeah. I If I was like to vote, I'd vote on Elvis above that. But I know I'm being terrible. I'm being a terrible film critic or writer or whatever the hell I am on this thing. Because last night, uh, Rosie started I'm blaming my wife on Women's History Month. Uh, she started watching the John Wick movies. And, you know, John Wick one, and then we go, it starts John Wick two, the app, I think it was Peacock. And uh, I keep thinking we should watch Tar, we should watch uh, (laughs) Triangle of Sadness. And it was just like, really hard to make yourself stop watching Keanu Reeves, beat the shit out of people, murdering hundreds of people uh, in a kind of video game violence. That's you know, the John wick movies are the best looking movies of the last 10 years. I'm just going to say that it's a winning formula and people love delving into that John wick world. And, uh, it should have won best picture of the decade. All of them, (laughs) every single one of them, every single one. I've only seen the third one in theaters. You don't need to see any of the others. I just, I took an edible and I went and I saw the last one. And I think we're going to watch all of them in reverse. Nice. You talked about this in our last episode, how all the Oscar movies, all the big movies are such downers. Like, how do you... It's a dour year, man. Dour year. How do you go, hey, honey, can we stop watching this beautiful confection of Keanu violence and let's watch Triangle of Sadness? You know, it's... (laughs) It's a hard pivot. Women talking. I want to see women talking. I want to watch women talking. It was great. Actually, my 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 two picks are Tar and, and Women Talking. I think those are the best movies uh, of the year. Mm. Um, but I'll tell you, I saw The Fablemans this week. I didn't like it. I thought I would really like that Fablemans, but it really uh, was a, a talk about a jive-ass movie really i haven't watched you know that's another one it's like oh let's let's pay you know 15 dollars to watch the fablemans you know they're just- doing they're, they're doing a cool thing now where everything all the oscar noms on streaming are like five bucks this week so i recommend that's what how i'm doing it but uh david lynch is worth it for the john ford cameo so that's worth the whole price of admission right there I just want to say, boo, Brendan Fraser, the whale, boo. Fat oh, I didn't Fobig. even realize the whale was up for anything. Fat Fo- it's best actor, boo. And he's going to win it. And it's like, he's a guy since Gods and Monsters that I've wanted to win the thing. And he's going to win it for yeah, that. Yeah, he's going to win it for that bullshit. Yeah. He's been such a sad sack lately, just crying at every award show, crying his eyes out. Just, yeah, okay, like, we've sh- had enough tears, buddy. Shut up. <laughs> Shut up. 
Shut up, whale. <laughs> Before we go to our old movies, uh, you know, it is Women's History Month, and Elizabeth Banks made some history by directing right. Cocaine Bear, which I highly recommend. I enjoyed the hell out of Cocaine Bear, everybody. Did you see it in IMAX? <laughs> <laughs> I did not. I saw it at the Bayfair San Leandro multiplex. Nice. I think it's a Cinemark multiplex. The floors were sticky. People were heckling the movie. Somebody asked me if anybody was doing cocaine during the movie, and I'm like, I didn't go to the women's bathroom, folks, because that's where the cocaine goes on in a club. But uh, people were very animated during the movie. P people loved it. Uh, Ray Liotta's last film, or maybe last film, I mean, he just cranks out so many movies or cranked out so many movies and he is he's playing that typical Ray Liotta character like in in Goodfellas and so many other movies but he is like maybe the most evil version of that Ray Liotta archetypal character congratulations on all your success Elizabeth Banks uh this is good for movies this is good for genre films this is good for theaters people are back in the theaters baby people are yelling at that megan they're hooping and hollering at that cocaine bear i i i don't know if i could sit through cgi bear for so long uh but it, bob i trust your judgment it's only like 90 minutes or 89 minutes or something and and i it's longer than the hitchhiker then no i'm out <laughs> yeah. uh, oh god yeah it's it's hard not to be oh, longer yeah. than the hitchhiker i i i hope you i hope everybody appreciated that movie's brevity hell yeah that's the right time elizabeth banks you are making women's history and all history in the steps of agnes varda and ida lupino cocaine bear <laughs> <laughs> In 1955, artist and photographer Agnes Varda innovated a new style of filmmaking with her very first movie, La Pointe Court, with its juxtaposition of the drama of a young couple's strained relationship with a near documentary on the struggles of a small fishing village. What became known as the French New Wave was born, only nobody noticed until some dudes made movies like The 400 Blows and Breathless. Imagine that. After La Pointe Court, Varda made several short films, but not, did not direct another feature until 1962 with today's first film, where a rising pop star named Cleo, short for Cleopatra, faces an uncertain or even grim future as she awaits the results of a medical test. 
Told almost in real time with a camera that dances around its subjects, Varda continues to defy cinematic conventions as she intersperses the realism she became famous for with the sure reality of occasional music video and comedy interludes. With Corinne Marchand in the title role and appearances by composer Michel Legrand and French New Wave compatriots Anna Karina and Jean-Luc Godard, this is Cleo from 5 to 7. Uh, Felina, what did you think of it? I really enjoyed this movie. I really loved... Okay. The aesthetics of Cleo from 5 to 7 it are so beautiful. Um, I feel like I'm watching, like, an edit of, like, Lana... De- it feels so Lana Del Rey, coquette, um, sad girl vibes. And it's... It's giving. It's so good. It's so so fun. It's honestly worth it just for the shots of early 60s Paris alone. But the story is so, so like entrancing. And I feel like if you are a woman or a woman adjacent, uh, you will relate to this movie in some aspect. And it's really fascinating and so, so cool. So gorgeous. So Lana on also, I just, I could not stop thinking about how Lana Del Rey this movie is. What about the fashions in it? Oh, so good. Um, my favorite was her workout outfit, which was a fuzzy robe. You know, I just need to throw on my feathers while I hang from this, from this bar for like two seconds. I thought that was so good. So funny. Her, oh my God. Also her, um, little polka dot outfit in the beginning. Just amazing. I just, I, every single part of this movie I thought was so beautiful and fascinating and the acting, I loved the acting in this. I, I have high, high praise, high, high, high praise for Cleo five to seven. I watched this movie enough times to really notice like the fashions, even like uh, Cleo has a valet who's also in kind of a zebra print kind of outfit. Just the aesthetics of the movie are amazing. Corey, your thoughts. I first came across this movie not too long ago, flipping through channels. I stopped on it and I watched a little of it and I'm like, this movie is just French people doing stuff. And then I switched it off. And this is my first time watching it all the way through it's my first varda and uh i didn't realize that it was in real time while she was waiting for the results of a cancer test right that changes everything all the all these things where french people are just doing stuff you know it's cleo following cleo through the day while she's trying to pass time it adds this huge suspense and tension to everything no longer is she just shopping for hats she's maybe shopping for hats for her last time not only is she like practicing with her songwriting team it's like these songs better fucking mean something or something you know what i mean i didn't realize it what's it's so much better that way (laughs) once you know what the movie is so my advice is watch movies from the beginning people Uh, (laughs) it really helps but no it's this is an amazing movie it's one of those movies that just has so much soul and heart her eye for directing and just the way that she makes the city look and everyone's clothes is so cool but you don't just see them looking great in their clothes you see cleo getting ready and her maid helping her 
put on her wig and her clothes. And you see it, it's like a lot of efforts involved. You don't just see them looking great. You see them not looking great too, the people in the movie. You don't, you know, you see the the artist's uh, model, you know, putting on her really cool dress and how it like, how she looks without it on and then with it on. And, and it just, uh, it, it doesn't just make everything look perfect and great. She looks so beautiful in this movie, Corinne Marchand. Uh, it's insane. It's like the most beautiful person you've ever seen on film, right? Yeah. Um, if you go through like the, there's a lot of supplemental material on Criterion Channel about I this I didn't movie. see any supplemental material, but yeah, tell me. In the early 90s, Madonna wanted to remake this, but to Madonna's credit, she wanted Varda to direct it. As far as I can make out from this French talk show footage that's on Criterion, that that's what scuttled it is Varda wanted to work in her Varda style. And when you have a star like Madonna back then, I mean, she just did Dick Tracy. So yeah. <laughs> she's she's at the height of her movie stardom. And, Interesting. You know. That would have been a spectacular failure, right? We all know that, so it's good it was <laughs> yeah, never made. <laughs> but Var- yeah, Varda wanted to have this kind of loose script and didn't. she was willing to do it. She thought that Madonna looked, at that time, looked like Corinne Marchand. Varda was game for it, but Hollywood and the producers and the money people just couldn't really deal with how she wanted to work it. And when I watch this movie, I think of like what an Elizabeth Taylor version of this movie from 1962 would be like. There would be more men in it, like Richard Burton would have a prominent role. And, yeah. you know, the, the men in this movie are really kind of, you know, they're like the composer and stuff. They're just there to vex her till the soldier at the end. And we'll we'll get to him in a little bit. Mm-hmm. But um, and a lot of the like thumbnail descriptions of this movie, like when you're looking at it on HBO Max or just kind of online descriptions of it, they describe Cleo as selfish like a selfish young singer felina do do you see her that way i saw her i saw her as like very vain um i didn't i didn't see her as selfish um i think vanity and selfishness are kind of like they're similar but i don't think they're the same i just thought it's really fascinating to me because the use of mirrors in this movie like before before she goes and takes off her wig um and leaves her house there's so many mirrors like in the in the restaurant uh at her house in they're they're all over the place she's constantly staring at herself and she finally like takes off that wig and leaves the house and goes to see her friend and puts on the the hat that she, you know, she's super superstitious. She puts on the hat on the Tuesday, which is apparently a big no-no. And she starts breaking all of these superstitions and breaks a mirror. Every mirror after that, I think, is broken. And it's just so, so beautiful, like, the way the storytelling. I think, yeah, I so I think when she does that, when she leaves the house, it's her getting like a sense of her inner self like she's she's kind of looking at her inner self versus her outer self yeah get it getting out of her head right but it's not it's it's not explicit it's told so subtly but we just get it and it does this cool thing because since we're just dropping in on the life of this woman on this particular day and during this particular two hours we have no previous there's no exposition to tell us tell us about her but Every, no one's taking her seriously about her sickness. Her lover isn't. Her band isn't. Mm-hmm. Not even her maid. Her maid's like, oh, yeah, oh, what are you talking about? She's like, I'm sick. Don't you remember? And so there's probably like a boy who cried wolf thing about her, right? Like everyone's like, yeah. oh, you're always sick. You're always sick. 
And we all know people like that who are always complaining and fetching and think that, you know, hypochondriac people. But no, she's really sick. (laughs) And it's not a joke. And so it's interesting to see everyone react to that when we know the truth, but she's not Mm -hmm. telling anybody. So it's interesting. It's, It's very smart storytelling. And yeah, the shots are amazing. I don't know how she got some of those shots with the mirrors. Uh, there's one shot when she's in her apartment arguing with her songwriters that like it goes behind her head that I I don't I can't figure out how it did this. But yeah, it's it's so good. And, and you're right. Once that that wig comes off and it's kind of like an ego break. Right. And getting mm-hmm. out of the head. And then and then finally, she eventually does meet someone who takes her seriously and actually hears her after just being surrounded by so many people that just kiss her ass and don't exactly (laughs) it's interesting yeah 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 yeah. she meets a young soldier and for a little bit of context there's there's there is context in the film itself where when they're driving around in the cab at the beginning they talk about the war in algeria which was uh for a little bit of explanation for people who don't know it was um basically france's vietnam after vietnam because they had their own vietnam in vietnam but algeria was a colonial holding of france's in north africa and they were trying to hang on to it it was like basically the jewel of their crown and much as we did in Iraq, as the United States did in the Iraq war, they descended in torture and all these terrible, terrible practices trying to hang on to that. So the young soldier she meets at the end of the film, right before she is going to get her diagnosis, she's facing cancer. He's going back to Algeria and he will could very well die there. So they they both have that kinship of facing death fate you know that an uncertain death not certain death but they it's definitely on the table for them in the near future the war in algeria stuff is very cool and done very smartly and well it's just bubbling in the background there's people at restaurants talking about it the news on the radio is talking about it and it is very relatable because while you're dealing with your real life shit that's so terrible you might be terminally ill you're dealing with the lover that doesn't really care about you uh you know all this you're dealing with your bullshit in life you have to deal with the political turmoil out there in the world too which is just adds on to the the awful existential dread of of life even if you're in swinging uh paris gay paris in the early 60s you know what i mean it's still just awful out there and really hard to live and that's dealt so well uh shampoo starring warren Beatty does the same thing where it takes place on the night of the 68 election or something like that. Oh, yeah. And I never realized, I think Shampoo totally ripped this off because they do the exact same thing in that movie. Well, one thing this movie has that we take for granted now is because it is told, it's it's compressed time a little bit because it's not really over the full two hours. The movie's shorter than that. But it gives you the time and the date those those on, on screen. It tells you what time it is, what the, what the date is. And so cool. I don't think a lot of movies did that before then. If you watch a lot of older movies, maybe French movies did it, but I watch even a lot of older French movies before this, and we had Wages of Fear on earlier this season. They don't really do that. So now it's just something all movies do. John Wick movies do it. Marvel Tarantino movies do it. Does it. Tar- yeah. yeah, Tarantino does it. But that that's this groundbreaking thing. And Hitchcock did Rope before this, which is a movie, the first movie kind of like Birdman, where it's told, you know, it's all film, looks like it's filmed in one shot, that whole conceit. Varda doesn't do that because she she's interested in objective and subjective time. So you get these like cut-in shots of people that aren't even there, like yeah 
people that kind of glowered at at Cleo earlier and things, and it does some surreal bits with the like fake silent film that um, Jean Luc Godard is in, and uh, the 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 song the song she sings with her songwriters the gothy song the the amazing oh. French pop goth song incredible that scene's so incredible yeah that was awesome. Yeah, so there is surrealism in this movie. It's not just a straight cinema verite thing. And yeah, you hear people's inner monologue about Cleo a lot, which is funny <laughs> when you get to see what people really think about her. Everyone seems to like her. It's hard not to just, you know. I know, yeah. Even though she, even though she, she kvetches so much about being sick. Uh, one thing going back to the difference between the first half of the movie and the second half, because there's that definite change that Felina mentioned is earlier in the movie when her like, you know, bouncy pop song comes on in the cab. She doesn't want to hear it. And, you know, the cab driver and everybody's like happy to hear it. But she's like, oh, my voice was terrible in the recording session. I don't want to hear this. And then later, after she takes off the wig, she goes to that cafe. She puts on her song in the jukebox yeah. and nobody <laughs> cares. And then she's broken up about that. Yeah. So oh, yeah. Funny. Also, I want to be that bitch so bad that goes into a shop, orders one brandy, has everybody stare at her, and then leaves, not even <laughs> paying or anything. Like, how iconic. I was like, she is She is the main character. Like, she's the main character, but she's the main character, you know? Yeah. Yeah, she's the main character of any week you watch this movie, any, any month you watch this movie. It is... It's so good on so many levels. One thing I want to get off my chest before we move on to weed references or wrapping up this movie, uh, Corey, I recommend, and it is on Criterion, you should see Agnes Varda's document tour because Varda lived in L.A. for a long time with her husband Jacques Demi. Yeah, she had a huge poster of Jim Morrison on her wall. She she was one of only five mourners at her funeral, which uh, at, at at Jim Morrison's funeral, she befriended him in L.A. She was an L.A. person, of course, still couldn't make it in Hollywood. She made the Black Panthers documentary at that time. She came up to Oakland right. during the trials of Huey Newton and, and filmed that. It's a great film. That's also on Criterion. You can find that, I think, on HBO Max. But a documentaire is filmed in 1980 in L.A. It's a French movie. Most of the dialogue is in French. But since it's filmed in L.A. in that Agnes Varda documentary style, cinema verite style, it's a French movie, but there's still dudes with Dodgers caps, like Latino, Chicano dudes kind of hanging out in the scenes with Dodger, with Dodger caps on. So it is uh, your early childhood, Corey. It, it, it really reached me because her son plays plays the kid in the movie and he's always got all these star Wars action figures and it's after the divorce or the separation and the absentee dad is always giving him all the coolest toys, but he never gets to see his dad. So for me, it was like this movie hits on so many levels. Yeah. yeah, yeah. If the kid was fat, I would be like, Oh my God, that's me except in French, but it is, it's it's eighties LA late seventies LA en français. Um, I understand why this is one of considered one of the best films ever made. It deserves it, and uh, it's definitely the best French New Wave film I've ever made, and better I've ever seen, and better than any like Godard film. And I like Godard, but like uh, as far as the slice of life movies that he makes, like masculine, feminine, and stuff, this is like so has so much more soul, so much more heart somehow. And yeah, uh, this is a home run. Ten out of ten would watch ten more times. When I was doing improv all the time, I had a friend, Kiki. 
she came in with a masculine feminine shirt and i was like hell yeah i was like hell yeah feminism per yeah, nope. like, no <laughs> actually bob i do think i have one criticism of cleo from five to seven just just as a stoner from a stoner standpoint it's it's subtitles it's subtitles and stoners don't like to read that much what about our french listeners I mean, okay, well, that's different. That is different. <laughs> it's fully different. I'm saying from an um, from an American stoner standpoint. Okay, so, Felina, what weed did you choose for Cleo from 5 to 7? Um, So I did end up taking a nap during Cleo from 5 to 7, so maybe not the best weed for this. It is an Indica ice cream cake resin. So this is a new apartment. I'm in and I don't know how loosey goosey they are on smoking because there was they were like specifically no smoking. So I'm a little worried. So I've been using my Puffco a lot and uh, ice cream cake. The sugar is what we got. Uh, It's pretty good. It's I would say not with this movie. Probably. I think you want to like watch some cartoons with this one uh, with ice cream cake. But uh, I would say something a little bit happier for for this. I mean, not happier because it's because this movie is depressing, but you want to keep your mind like awake. <laughs> you want to be. It's kind of easy breezy, though, you know, it's kind of buzzy. No, yeah. It's a bouncy, depressing film. Like the subject matter exactly. is depressing, but it's very you're on the streets of Paris. You've, yeah. Yeah. You want like. There's impending doom, but. On the journey there, it's yeah, kind of fun. so a hybrid. So you want a hybrid is uh, not an indica. <laughs> it's, it's funny you say that, Felina, because I got myself blue cherry lemonade to smoke during this movie, and I picked the right thing. This is a uh, indica dominant hybrid. Let me read. Hold on, there's a big fight going on inside my house. Hold on. Okay. Blue Cherry Lemonade is a cross between Cherry Pie OG and Jack the Ripper. She's a sugary treat. Very frosty, beautiful, dense buds. Flavor profile that's off the charts with incredible high. Look for the prize. Fruit punch phenotypes. Other variations range from Sweet Cherry OG, Lemon Candy. Very strong plant. Yeah, this was good because not only does the sativa keep you kind of buzzed and feeling good throughout the film, but the indica helps you deal, not deal, but uh, dive in to the surreal parts of this movie and um, the cerebral parts. This is a very stony movie. Even though people in Paris in the 60s weren't stoners, they were more cigarette smokers. It works well with a great indica dominant uh, hybrid. So that is my recommendation for this movie. I had a similar mindset going into this because I wanted an indica to really kind of feel the emotion of the movie, but I still wanted to keep that kind of sativa thing in the background. So I went with Sublime Mini Fuzzies Wedding Cake, AKA Pink Cookies. It's got 34%, 34.45% THC. Um, I got these pre-rolls because I'm still working my way through all of this blue dream here. So the last thing I wanted was another bag of weed. So I went with the pre-rolls here. And um, yeah, it, it totally got me there. All the like cut in shots were really, really, you know, speaking to me. Like I was really noticing all the st- all the stuff that Varda does with like the compression of time or playing with time or inserting things that it isn't just this kind of all one shot kind of movie, even though it happens over the course of this two hours. Um, also, the dude eating the frogs was really, really leaping out at me when the water when, when he vomits all the water. That part is so sick. 
<laughs> we forgot to talk about the dude scarfing down frogs on this. It's like a it's like a sideshow on the streets of Paris. There's all these people like kind of circus performance. This is the French New Wave. So what does that guy mean symbolically? If anyone could, <laughs> could, could hold my hand through this, because it's got to mean something, right? Well, he's barfing up the cancer, you know, I guess. I don't <laughs> know. It's like it's like one of those weird, he, scammy Jim Jones healing tricks. But yeah, Sublime Mini Fuzzies wedding cake pre-rolls. I got them in the San Leandro dispensary. Um, you smoke, I, did you smoke just a couple hits or did you smoke the whole thing to your head? It was a couple hits at first, then a couple more hits. And then nice. later I smoked the whole thing to my head and fell asleep. Nice. They are mini. They are mini joints too. So I mean, you could just smoke this whole thing. Why do they make these things so hard to open? By the way, these boxes. Like I don't know. They they really got to do that. You more experienced owners could just smoke this whole thing to your head and watch Cleo from five to seven. I'm sure you could do it. You've got the power. Just remember, never smoke your new weed on a Tuesday. Don't do it. Never smoke your new weed on a Tuesday. It's time once again for the TikTok report with Felina Franklin. Okay. <laughs> so TikTok absolutely knows about Cleo from five to seven. A hundred percent. There are so many TikToks. I'm just showing you guys. Look, so many TikToks of Cleo from five to seven. However, there's barely any comments on those TikToks. People are not really interacting with that content, but they it is being made for sure. Some of my favorite videos that I've seen are these, this is what the female gaze looks like in film. And it's just clips of Jennifer's body and Lady Bird and Little Woman. And then all of, then you'll get a peek of like uh, Cleo from five to seven, like, She'll just show up. It's just these these clips edited together. And it's like, this is what the female gaze looks like to women. It's like, no, this is a TikTok. But it's so, it's so fun. There, there are really not very many comments, like I said. They did say, though, there is one specific TikTok that says, if you are lonely but you need hope, watch Cleo from 5 to 7. So many, so many TikToks. So little things actually said about it. But people know about it. People know it's a great movie. More people need to watch it. I want to see my entire TikTok feed full of Cleo from 5 to 7. Cleo from 5 to 7 is now streaming on HBO Max and Criterion Channel, and you can watch it for free on Canopy, a free streaming service that's available from participating libraries. Ask your librarian about Canopy. And a good, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Sam Hayes reporting your news final. At the top of the news tonight is the report that the hitchhike murderer, Emmett Myers, is still at large. Yesterday, the devil thumbed another ride, and William Johnson of Portland asked him to hop in. Now, William Johnson is dead. As you may have guessed, it has been our aim here tonight to choose our presenters for their fitness for the honor. We also felt that if they were good to look at, that didn't hurt a bit. But to present the award for the best achievement in direction, the committee has chosen the best-looking director in town. Stanley Lapina's daughter must have been born wise in the ways of show business, if there's anything at all in heredity. She has lately added writing, directing, and producing to her busy and distinguished career as an actress. Ladies and gentlemen, Miss Ida Lapina. If a genie ever gave me a wish, I think I'd know how I'd like to spend it. 
I want my name to be in a list like this. Those nominated for the best achievement in directing are All the King's Men, Robert Rosson Production, Columbia, Robert Rosson, Battleground, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, William A. Wellman, The Fallen Idol, London Film Productions, Selznick Releasing Organization, British, Carol Reed, The Heiress, Paramount, William Wyler, and A Letter to Three Wives, 20th Century Fox, Joseph L. Mankiewicz. The envelope, please. The winner is Joseph L. Mankiewicz. When Ida Lupino announced the Oscar for Best Director at the 1950 Academy Awards, she was the only woman member of the Directors Guild of America. Things are a little better now with women making up around 25% of overall GGA membership, but you'd still think we could have done a little better in the past 73 years. Lupino was able to make the transition from movie star to director in the late 40s by starting her own production company called The Filmmakers so she could make movies on subjects that the big studios wouldn't touch. By working fast and with low budgets, she was able to follow up her first film, Not Wanted, in 1940 about unwed mothers, with movies about polio, never fear, and rape with outrage in 1950. While her second feature today doesn't tackle any serious social issues, it is her best known work. It's a true crime noir about a couple of married men out on a fishing trip who pick up a guy thumbing a ride who turns out to be a serial killer. It's got an all-male cast, which might seem a bit odd for International Women's Day or National Women's History Month, but remember, it's a woman who's bossing around noir regular Edmund O'Brien and William Tallman from Perry Mason and all the dudes on the crew. From 1953, this is The Hitchhiker. So, Corey, is this your first time watching The Hitchhiker? What did you think of it? It's my first time. Tell me a little bit about Ida Lupino, because I don't know anything. Okay, she was like a pretty big movie star during the golden age of Hollywood. She is British, comes from a theatrical family, an acting family, the Lupinos, and moved to Hollywood. And she is, her probably best known role is in High Sierra with Humphrey Bogart. She's uh, was oh. a Warner Brothers contract actress or actor. She's also in They Drive by Night with Bogart. But yeah, she she's a an iconic star of that kind of Warner Brothers era along, you know, with like, Barbara Stanwyck and and later Joan Crawford you know she's one of the the Betty Davis is of course their biggest woman star of the time biggest movie star maybe biggest movie star of the time but she's up there with them and then she makes this transition kind of later in her career but she's still starring in things and still still definitely able to draw top movie star dollars she joked that she isn't in her own films because she couldn't afford herself she first started out wanting to produce but then the director of um, Not Wanted got sick, so she stepped in and directed. And then she makes that transition and then goes on to direct a lot of TV. She directed The Masks, that Twilight Zone episode, like one of the oh, creepiest, wow. one of the top ten Twilight Zones. Yeah. She directed everything from, you know, Have Gun, Will Travel, which is the best 50s Western show, if anybody cares, listening. And lots of episodes of Boris Karloff Thriller and even Gilligan's Island. So, I mean, she, she kept on directing. She just... Get money, Ida Lupino. Get those yeah. paychecks. Nice. Thanks for the context. Uh, this movie is cool. 
That's how I'll describe it. This movie is a cool little movie. It's not a big high stakes movie. It's a little crime thriller, a white knuckler, a lot of tension. And it's it's cool because it's a, it has all the noir tropes that you love. And it's interesting that you mentioned she's British because it, it feels it's such an American movie. It's these guys driving down to Mexico, uh, go fishing. Uh, this hitchhiker hijacks them, basically keeps them hostage. And it's just their harrowing journey their tense, awful, harrowing journey while this hitchhiker with a gun uh, just keeps the gun pointed at them the whole movie while they just do whatever he says in some sort of weird dom-sub thing happening. There's, um, It's definitely like fetishy, this movie. All the men are such cowards in this movie, right? So the two men being held hostage are cowards because this is the most frustrating thing about this movie. They have multiple chances to get away from this dude and they never take any of them. So they're cowards because they're just so scared of the gun. And then the insane uh, villain with the gun is a coward because he's just p powerful because he has a gun. And it is definitely a metaphor for a penis, 100%. So it's interesting how weak, and these are all strong, big, noir actors dramatic and uh, they're also weak in this movie it's just like a, a movie full of weak coward men which is funny and it's cool and uh kind of reminds me of a little bit of like jim jarmish's down by law which i'm sure this was an influence on um but it, it is a harrowing journey through a road trip to mexico with these three dudes all cowards <laughs> and, and two of them very scared the whole time they're so scared and it's cool i like the mexico setting it's vast desert settings add to how helpless everything is and also that no one speaks english too it's just like shit we're really helpless out here life sucks right now it's not that stony though so that's what i'll say about this movie is it's not very stony but we can talk about that on the weed recommendations but overall this movie is worth a poke and idol lapino seems cool lots of cool anti-male subtext in here that i quite enjoyed uh felina were you seeing the same anti-male subtext in this film i don't think i was seeing the same because i know this movie is really short but I was bored. I'm sorry. I was bored throughout the whole thing. I was like, oh my God, just fucking kill this guy. Like, it's so, like, I don't care about these men. You can literally kill them. Listen, it was, it was good. It was, it was, it was good. It was a good movie. I think I might've just been either on the wrong stuff. I might've been in the wrong headspace. Because I was watching this movie and I was like, oh my god, just go. Like, just just do something. But I, I was bored. I was bored throughout most of it. I did enjoy uh, the, like, when he was threatening the the guys with the, with the little cans. He was like, can you shoot the cans? If he had just turned the shotgun on him and killed him, they could have gone. They could have gone. Every single right. time. But it, that it was, was frustrating. A, it was a humiliation fetish scene. You see what I'm saying? It really this was, was a fetish <laughs> fetish movie. Yeah, Fetishing it's a total movie. These guys are into being humiliated by this other guy. It I'm feels you. like it because it was like, well, it was just like, come on, like get on with it already. Like if you guys are really like, they must have been enjoying it. They had to have been. Right? Because it was so like maybe a little Stockholm syndrome y thing happened. A little. Too. Yeah. They're like, wait, I'm away from my wife. Maybe I can try maybe they're maybe they're gay. By the end of this movie there's some gay stuff happening. There's By the end of this stuff. movie, um, 
their car is broken one of them like breaks an ankle and they're just like it's oh hell God. it's hell now this movie's only 70 minutes long but you, you go through this journey which i understand why it's it was boring for you it's because this movie isn't stony it's just played very straight and yeah. for people who are your age and my age who didn't grow up with that kind of stuff that kind of wash it like that acting style and the dialogue style just washes over us. That's why old movies are so hard for us to get into. Right. This right. one is definitely an old grandpa movie. Yeah. <laughs> no, for real. I to totally, totally. It's definitely something that my dad would put on in the morning and be like, he'd be like, I know, seriously, he'd be like, dude, this is like cinema and i'd be like shut god up. I, i'm really needing i'm really god. needing your dad for backup here on the hitchhiker <laughs> I, I, mean, I, knew, I knew this would be a problem once the dudes with epaulets show up and they speak spanish there's no subtitles like and they're just speaking a raft of spanish and wait can i also just mention sorry just really quick Every time people were speaking Spanish, they would be like, speaks a foreign language on my subtitles. <laughs> like, tell me what they're saying. The movie doesn't do that. There's just these like one minute long, two minute long scenes of. Because of it wanted to show how they don't understand each other and how hopeless that feels. Understand? Yeah, yeah. And you, you, you don't, you don't have. We don't understand other languages all the time. It's realism. But I was like, the dudes with the epaulets show up, and it's basically like a '50s monster movie for a while, where where William Tallman, uh, the serial killer, is a monster, and they're tracking him and trying to find him and trying to figure out how to defeat him. And I'm like, oh man, Corey's gonna really hate this. He hates it when these guys show up in these movies, whether it's an American monster movie, the a white Japanese coats, monster and, movie. yeah, yeah, yeah. There are some white coats and dudes, kind of military they're cops but they're kind of military looking because they're mexican and they've got epaulets and shit i also i know i know there weren't as many tropes yet you could still you know do all the stereotype movie stuff but the way they catch the guy is the classic oh i see his face on a wanted poster and then call the cops and then that's it yeah. anticlimactic <laughs> exactly this movie made me think that Maybe women shouldn't direct movies. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Oh, <laughs> well, they could have been, been a little more creative with the way they catch it. Like, like give totally. the, the hostages some sort of make them clever. Like figured out something, you know, like anything. But these guys are such just nothing cowards. They don't say anything. Literally, there's a scene where they're fixing a tire and a, a nice Mexican couple drives by them and they go like, hey, uh, you guys need any help with anything? And they just stare blankly at him. I'm like, you morons. Actually, yeah. Wink and Morse code, something, you know? It doesn't valorize them. Like every other movie from the time, if like Andre right. de Toth or Howard Hawks or somebody directed this, it would totally have them man up and, you know, and it would do, they get all John happen. Wayne. Yeah, it's insane. It, and only a woman could have directed it that way. Now, yeah. the movie is based on a true incident. There was a, uh, there was a serial killer who was a hitchhiker and rode around. His name was uh, Bill Cook and uh, Billy Cook. And in 1950, he went on this hitchhiking murder spree and he picked up these two guys on a fishing trip and held them hostage. And Lupino met one of those guys in 
Palm Springs and decided this was a story she wanted to direct. She had directed a lot of women-focused movies before this, all of her other movies, so she wanted to break free of that, really to show men that she could direct like a thriller, a genre picture instead of just these issue movies. But she had as much trouble bringing this to the screen as she did those movies because the Hayes Code, the Breen Office, had this rule that, you know, while Billy Cook was still alive on death row, that you couldn't glamorize a living criminal. Like it was just this hard and fast rule, which you could think of Ryan Murphy, like his whole career would be over as a, <laughs> as a producer. Yeah. If, if that rule was still in effect, the whole true crime, I discovery couldn't exist if that rule, but she wanted to make it more of a documentary true life true crime movie and had to fictionalize a lot of it just to get it made but she was taken with their story of survival how they survived and also their story of of humiliation i think is a part of it guys back then too if you think about it a lot more of them served in world war ii in korea so you think they would be tougher but they're just totally broken down by that power dynamic of william tallman in the movie uh i have to say this is william tallman's best role too as as the serial killer and he's got this kind of messed up eye so they can never tell when he's asleep because that eye's always open he's got a scar over his face that keeps that one eye pinned open so they just can never tell if he's asleep or not yeah that's an interesting it, thing yeah. yeah that was that was like the most suspenseful thing i think yeah, they do make a break for it. And to, to these guys' credit, like if one of them just ditched the other guy, they could have made it, but they don't do that. They're well, they're all wor- they're both worried about each other. They don't want each other to get hurt, so they're they're stuck. Pussies. You said it. I didn't. They're on their gay wife free weekend, going fishing out in the woods, and there there's that kind of one funny bit where they're in Mexicali, they cross over, and Edmund O'Brien wants to like go to like the burlesque halls and things, but his pal's asleep, which is that's what happens when you get older, folks. Like you you still think you want to relive your glory days, but your friend is just old and he fucking falls asleep during the fucking drive he's more interested in mexicali damn it yeah they drove through mexicali and he wants to go to the whorehouses or whatever they used to go to and and the burlesque halls and another pathetic move from these dorks hey if you love pathetic (laughs) men this is the movie for you i will say there is one quote that really really was my favorite um and it's from from the serial killer he said my folks took one look at this puss of mine and told me to get lost (laughs) and i know that puss used to meant face but also it's giving t-boy swag giving trans boy swag (laughs) i think it's a great tight movie it's i you shouldn't expect too too much from it because it is just this little b movie programmer it's on the b side of the bill but i think it's got a lot of good tension and it is interesting that we don't get like these big john wayne robert mitchum i'm gonna punch this guy out moments even when they do fight william tallman at the end is he's called Emmett myers in this instead of billy cook because of what they had to do to get it produced but even when they do fight him it's kind of like the oh i hate you i'm so frustrated like little kids fighting the guy like yeah, yeah, the cops are holding him. But that's also a, a pathetic coward move is to punch a guy while he's handcuffed, which is... Oh, yeah, yeah. 
But yeah, I don't think a man would have directed it this way and would have made it this way. And so there's there's interesting stuff. Okay, uh, are there any TikToks about this one? Are we doing TikToks? I highly doubt it. There are two TikToks. Okay, two. <laughs> <laughs> there are two TikToks. There was there's this one that I think is really awesome. I just recently found this guy. His name's Hale Skelter. He he does movie content and he's like, what's up, TikTok? Let me tell you. He's got this kind of like hard uh, aesthetic to him. He's like, what's up, TikTok? Let me tell you about these old movies. He's He just has nothing but praise to say for um, The Hitchhiker. And there really are, there's not any comments worth noting. Just uh, love noir. Holy film noir. There's a D.A. Burger from Perry Mason, is it? I don't know. Who's who's who is on Perry Mason? William Tallman. William Tallman is Hamilton Burger. He is Perry Mason's foil, and he's just there to lose every case for like the course of nine seasons to Perry Mason. And oh so God. mostly, mostly on Perry Mason, he's always like kind of like he's the cuck on Perry Mason. Wherein the Hitchhiker, he makes everybody else into the cucks. On Perry Mason, he's like Your Honor, that's incompetent, irrelevant, and immaterial. You know, he's oh just kind God. of always like begging the judge for mercy as Perry just destroys his case. So. We should have mentioned that at the top, but yeah, he is, he is uh, the guy who always loses to Raymond Burr and Perry Mason. (laughs) Let's, let's go with Corey first, because he might've had a better weed experience than Felina did with this movie. I didn't. Uh, Let me tell you. So I smoked this new disposable vape from the company High 90s. It's a one gram vape of uh, live resin. This is Gelato, which is a uh, indica. And uh, like I said, this movie isn't stony. Now, this high 90s vape is great. This tastes like ice cream, and it's very pleasant, and it gets you super high. However, for a non-stony movie like this that takes place in Mexico, I'm going to recommend Mexican weed. That's right. Just smoke a big old honker J of Mexican dirt weed, the cheapest stuff you can get. Just ask for a bag of shake at your local dispensary, and that'll be fine for the 70 minutes of white-knuckled pansy boy tension that you will get here in The Hitchhiker, directed by Ida Lupino. Felina. That is perfect. My weed recommendation is shit this time because I just smoked the rest of, I smoked fuzzies through this. I smoked the sublime wedding cake pre-roll because I've got that or I've got the blue dream, folks. Maybe the blue dream would be better. But look at this. I mean, I've got this huge bag of this blue dream and I'm still, I'm just lamely working through it. Hey, if you need somebody to take it off your hands, please, I wouldn't. I would not mind. You'll probably get a little dime bag of this when I see you in a couple of weeks. <laughs> I don't um, know if I'll, you'll need it up there, though, because I'm sure you'll get oh plenty God. of other vials oh, yeah. and things. Other things, I'm sure. I smoked sour sherbet. Yum. Sativa. Look, I thought a sativa would work. I thought a sativa would help me. I really, I don't know. I don't know what could fix this because I wa- I started watching it the night before And I was smoking my ice cream cake indica and I was like, this is not the vibe. I'm so bored. Let's watch something else. So I woke up in the morning and I watched this in the morning with sour sherbet and it didn't help. So what the fuck? What do I smoke? Yeah, yeah, maybe maybe the weed can't help it. Maybe just the this uh, kind of procedural from my, it's not really a procedural, but this kind of, you know, very, very Hollywood yet real movie just isn't isn't syncing up with you. You loved Rat Finka Boo Boo and you were a champion I of love, that movie. 
loved rap fan kabuki. Yeah, we were all kind of doubting Thomas's about that. it. It had that camp that I really like. I feel like this wasn't campy enough for me. It yeah. didn't have. It wasn't stony enough. Rat finger boo boo stony as hell. Yeah, it's stony it's, as. It's, it's, but anyway, it's seventy minutes. Hitchhiker. Totally, I'm so glad I saw it. The Hitchhiker is now streaming on Prime, Criterion Channel, and you can watch it for free without ads on Canopy and free with ads on Pluto and Tubi. And so that concludes our National Women's History Month episode, what was originally supposed to be the International Women's Day episode. That concludes our Women's Day salute to women directors, and there aren't nearly enough of them. Felina, have we embraced equity enough for you today, or do we still have work to do? I mean, you're doing what you can for a white man, so. (laughs) Which isn't much. (laughs) Can't even bother to blink the Morse code to a nice Mexican man driving No, no. And that that one dude, uh, that one dude spoke Spanish, too. That one guy could have talked Mexican to the Mexicans. I know! Mexican, shut up. Throw a fucking can of beans at his head. That's all you had to do. This episode was suggested by Felina Franklin way back in season one. And in our next episode, she is tired of our shit and she is taking over and choosing the movies. Who knows what will happen as Felina exacts her revenge on me for choosing so many arty French films with subtitles. Whatever happens, though, you won't want to miss it. So stick that in your pen and vape it in April right here on Old Movies for Young Young Stoners. Stoners.